Welcome to the e-commerce toolbox, Expert Perspectives, a podcast by Noibu, where we explore the elite strategies and cutting edge insights with our expert guests. Get ready to propel your e-commerce business to the next level with your hosts, Kalen and Philip. Welcome to the first ever episode of the e-commerce toolbox. Today we have John Maris, the CEO of Solo Brands. They include iconic brands like Chubby's, Isle, Oru, and obviously the famous Solo Stove. Welcome, John. Yeah, thanks for having me. Super happy to be here, Kalen. So obviously, John, you and I go way back. We've known each other for a few years, back when it was the Solo Stove days. So I wanted to open it up with a question. What made you guys go from Solo Stove to Solo Brands? And how'd you pull it off? You know, it wasn't really a tribe thing. It happened pretty naturally. And I think that that's, you know, anything good generally happens that way. It almost falls on your lap. And that was the case for Solo Brands or the creation of Solo Brands. Solo Stove, as you mentioned, pretty iconic, been a pretty meteoric type brand story, founded in 2011 by two brothers, Spencer and Jeff Jan. They built an incredible business. I was fortunate enough to join in late 2018, right around the time that you and I actually met. And then we went on just a crazy run between 2018 and 19, 2020, 2021. I think we did like 16 million and then went to 39 million and then went to 130 million and then went to 360 million all in that like three-year period. And as we started seeing that success, a lot of the industry, right, the e-com space, the phone just started ringing and a lot of founders and CEOs of digitally native brands were picking up the phone and calling and asking what we were doing to see that kind of success. Honestly, we were pretty humbled to even be on the radars of some of the businesses that were, were picking up the phone and calling us. But ultimately, I remember distinctly being on a call with one of the CEO's founders that I was talking to. And it was actually the, the CEO and founder of uh, Oru Kayak. And we were just like picking each other's brains about what was working, what wasn't. And I was just like, man, like it'd be really cool to just like partner up and like be one company. Like maybe we could figure out a way to do this. And and he was like, yeah, that would be pretty cool. And then we just started talking to it. And the next thing you know, we had acquired Oru. And then similar thing happened with Isle. And then a similar thing happened with Chubby's. And you know, within about a three or four month period, we went from being a solo stove to being a family of four brands. And then two months after that, we IPO'd under the umbrella of solo brands with the stock ticker DTC. So it all just kind of happened fortuitously. But I'll tell you the key, and we'll talk about this probably as we go through the podcast a little bit today, but the key to the whole thing and the reason that you know you asked, like, how did you pull it off? We pulled it off by being profitable, by actually generating free cash flow and profit. Because obviously none of that happens if we don't, if we don't have that type of financial profile as a business. So we were well positioned to be able to make acquisitions and to create this platform because of our economic model. Well, and I think if you look at the state of just investing in e-commerce or SaaS now, profitable is kind of the topic du jour now. And it sounds like you guys were doing it back in 2018 when it might not have been that cool. And definitely it wasn't cool in 2020 when everything was popping off. So it sounds like you guys were early to the party on that one. Yeah, I mean, you know, listen, for many years, debt was free. The interest rates were basically zero. And so there wasn't a lot of incentive for business owners and entrepreneurs to be profitable when you could just go ahead and get cash for free and grow at all costs. Fortunately, the founders of Solo Stove kind of ingrained in me when I joined and they had lived this from the very beginning. They didn't have the luxury 
of raised capital. They founded the business with $15,000 in their garage. And every dollar that they invested in the business was dollar that they generated from the business. And that has continued really since 2011. So all I did was kind of pay homage to and stay true to what Jeff and Spencer had built. And, and it did pay off dividends when the markets flipped and when interest rates all of a sudden weren't 0%. So it's put us in a really strong financial position. Makes a lot of sense. That actually takes me to my second question. Like, what are some of your e-commerce principles? And I remember early conversations that you and I had around return on ad spend and all these metrics that I'd never heard of before. But what are kind of some of your guiding principles that maybe you had back in the day when you guys didn't have a 50, 100 million in the bank account? You guys might have had maybe enough for three payroll runs. Like, what are kind of some of those principles that not only you followed, but you instilled in the team? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, first, a, a penny saved is a penny earned. I think, you know, I'll use, I'll use some cliche old school quotes here, you know, as we start going into it. But every dollar that you save is a dollar that you've earned. And a dollar that you've earned, depending on your financial profile, is really like three to four dollars that you've sold. Because at the end of the day, you sell for your, you know, whatever your revenue is. And then you have your EBITDA or your net income or whatever your profit is. So every dollar you save, it's really like three or four times that, depending on your EBITDA profile, that you actually would have had to sell. Or if you have 10% EBITDA, just think about it this way. If I save 100 bucks, if I had 10% EBITDA, I would have had to sell $1,000 to get that $100. And so scrutinizing every dollar is really, really important. And you know this all too well from our very first introductions because I was just so painful to me to spend a dollar because I knew if I spent that dollar, I had to be able to sell whatever amount to make that dollar back. And it was more than just selling a dollar. I had to sell a lot more than a dollar to get that dollar back. And so I've always scrutinized every dollar we spent. I think that's number one. And I think number two is not that far different from it, which is that you have to sell your product or your service for more than it costs you to make that product, right? Like if you are selling the product, if your cost of good and your customer acquisition costs, if those two combined are more than what you're selling the product for, you're losing money. Like that doesn't work. That's a losing model. And so just very simply put, I think our keys to e-com are scrutinize every dollar spent and recognize that if you spend a dollar, you've got to have some, you said the term ROAS, you've got to have some return on ad spend or I just say return on spend, ROS. And secondly, just make sure that you're generating, you have a model where you're able to generate more revenue than cost on singular transactions when you're interacting with customers. And if you can do those two things, you know, you at least have a fighting chance at building something really special. And you know what? I do remember all of those early negotiations. You taught me a lot for those listening. John was one of the first customers on our platform way back, would have been probably in 2018. So it's been quite some time and both brands have grown a lot in the interim. Obviously, you guys are public now with multiple brands under the umbrella and kind of grown every day. But one thing that I know as a founder, we struggle with sometimes. And I feel like with your experience and your profile, you probably struggled a little less with this. But I'm curious, what are some of the things that you outsourced early on that maybe a founder or a less experienced executive would have wanted to build everything in-house, right? And I see it all the time in e-commerce. People want to build their own backend. They want to build their own platform. And you know what? Certain enterprise businesses or larger businesses need that. And you're probably feeling that at your scale now. 
But when you're three people in a garage, you probably don't need to be building your own database. So I guess to get back to the question, like what are some of the things that you outsourced early on that were kind of critical in supporting your growth? You know, it doesn't look all that different today than it did back then. I've said for years, really ever since I got to Solo, that we were not going to be a technology company. You know, we're an e-commerce business, but we're not a technology company. And the challenge with companies that want to become a technology company is that technology is, as you know, way better than I do. It's just ever evolving. It's ever changing. And if you're not innovating in technology, then you're ultimately going to be behind, like within weeks or months, uh, certainly within years. What we were going to be was just a phenomenal brand. And we were going to have products that really enhance people's lives. And that product wasn't the technology. It wasn't the website. It wasn't where people shopped. It was the product itself and the experience that they had with our brand. And so we just made the decision early on that we were going to partner with the technologists that we believed could deliver that customer experience that we were looking for that could enhance the shopping experience, enhance the product experience, the unpackaging experience, anything that basically made it easier and faster and less time consuming for a consumer to interact with our brand. We wanted to partner outsource those things and then basically control in-sourced all the things that would really, we felt like we could do the best. Technology was never one of those things. And so we found partners like Noibu that could come in and help us with error detection or you know, a partner like Shopify or BigCommerce, which we use both for different brands inside of our portfolio. Those are the things we decided to do as a business rather than go and try to build our own stack and have our own internal servers and hire our own engineers because we just felt like it was going to be a constant chase where we were just chasing people that were actually better and better resourced than us at building that technology. So those are the things that we tended to outsource was more technology-based. And then what we tended to insource was more human capital-based things. So creative, as an example, we insourced. So we have basically done most of our own creative work, all of our e-com execution in terms of running our own ads, making adjustments on our website for pricing, You know, making those types of changes, basic type stuff. Those are the types of things we insourced along with warehousing and fulfillment where we found a huge unlock in being able to deliver a better customer experience by delivering the product faster to the customer. Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense. And I think one thing that I've heard either directly from you or in one of your previous podcasts is you guys really want to be the product experts and the technology you develop is your products. It's having the best actual products versus trying to rebuild an e-commerce platform when there's already five or six Goliaths out there kind of trying to fight it out. So I, I think that's actually really, really valuable advice. Quick question on the fulfillment side. So I heard you touch on it and I've been privileged enough to see the operation that you guys have going now. And I, I saw the original operation back in the day and I see it now and it's grown so much. Maybe talk to me a bit about why you guys decided to invest in the technology that you guys invested in and what problem were you solving in kind of moving from warehouse A to warehouse B, but then also investing in all that automation? It all goes back to customer experience. It's turned out that we're, we're able to do it very profitably. We've been able to save money, but that wasn't why we did it, which is sometimes what people believe when they, when they first see it or experience it. The reason that we've done what we've done is because we were getting feedback really early on that customers were having a poor experience receiving the product. So either they were receiving the wrong product, they were receiving a damaged product, 
or they weren't receiving the product at all. And those three things were major pain points for us when I first joined the business, particularly because they love the actual product itself. So it would pain me to read a bunch of five-star reviews and everybody's loving the product. And all of a sudden there would be a one-star review and it would be like, I never got my product or I got a damaged product or I got the wrong product and realized that they hadn't even used our product yet. And they were giving us a one-star review. If there was anything I could do to control that process to where I could flip that around and I could get our customers to give us a five-star review before they even used our product, just like they were giving us one-star reviews before they were receiving the product, that would be an unlock. I had this intuition, this gut feeling that I could really change the game. And so in 2018, we insourced all of our fulfillment. We opened up our own warehouse. We started putting labels on boxes ourselves. To this day, even with all of the scale that we've had, every order on our website that's received by 5 p.m. local time ships that day. And so we went from one-star reviews on the shipping experience to customers receiving the product sometimes 12 hours after they hit submit on the order. And they're like, holy smokes, Like this is the most incredible thing. It's like magic. Like I checked out on the site, the product showed up at my door. And I just realized that we had unlocked something really special. I really recognized that when about three months in, we started looking at the financials and realized that we're saving a ton of money doing it ourselves versus outsourcing it. And so, you know, that's been a big differentiator for us. And as we built this platform, you talked about at the beginning and brought other brands in, we've been able to take that expertise in warehousing and fulfillment and ultimately just apply it to any of the brands inside the portfolio, including Chubby's, which by the way, has a much bigger SKU count than the rest of our businesses and also higher order counts, as you can imagine, because they're smaller AOVs or smaller average order values. But we've been able to keep up with that via innovation I think one of the things you and I are talking about before the podcast started was the robotic operation that we have. But we actually have robots that assist with the fulfillment for all of the Chubby's orders, which allow us to scale and ship out millions of, of orders on an annual basis and do it on time. Yeah. And that was actually part of my next question is, it sounds like you solved the problem at Solo Stove, right? I'm assuming when you acquired all these brands that are different life stages and a different headcount, you've got probably a mixed bag. Right. Like, how did you unify that? And how did you make that kind of a singular experience? So, whether I'm buying a pair of shorts on Chubby's, which I've done multiple times, or your pizza oven, which I bought for my father and mother in law, which they use all the time, how did you make that kind of like that singular, seamless experience? You know, honestly, it was just having the right team in place and applying the same principles. So, the principle behind it, regardless of whether it's swim trunks or whether it's a pizza oven or whether it's a paddleboard or a kayak or now an indoor fire pit, it doesn't really matter because the principle is deliver a wow experience to the customer. And if we could do that, regardless of the product, then ultimately we're winning. And that's what our operations team focuses on. So they don't think about it in terms of, oh, what type of product is this? They think about it in terms of what are the customer expectations and how can we ensure that we're exceeding those expectations? And then go build the operations around doing that. And so that's where the robots came in for Chubby's. We couldn't fulfill Chubby's the way we fulfilled Solo Stove and still deliver the same customer experience. So rather than them going, well, this is how we operate. And so they're going to have to fit into our model. We said, what is the customer expectation? What is that experience supposed to look like? Now let's go figure out the right operations process to make sure we can deliver that. And ultimately got to the place where we realized robots were going to be the best way for us to be able to do that at scale. So... Like, what is your assumption around the customer journey? Like, without naming any other kind of 
large e-com brands, at least on my end, do you think customer expectations have changed from kind of, let's say, when you got into Solo Stove in, in 18 to now? Like, did you see during COVID, like the expectation change? And I guess what I mean by that is we'll expect it in a shorter time frame. They expect X, they expect Y. Like, did you see that meaningfully progress or did you just kind of always take the same stance on that? I think that we've seen customer expectations change. I don't know that it's changed the way we operate. I think I've always had this kind of golden rule mentality, like do under others as you would like you would have people do unto you and just treat people right. Like treat them like you would treat it if your mom was making the purchase on your site. If your mom had the type of experience this customer was having, what would you do for your mom? And if you think about it, that lens, it's not that difficult. And the reality is when you treat people like you would treat your own mom, they love you. They refer you to their friends. They come back and they shop more. And so it's hard to do it in practice because there's always, you know, bad actors out there that take advantage of that. And we've seen it with returns and people saying they didn't get their package when in reality they did. And we ship them another one and then they sell the other one on marketplace and all the different things. Like, like you see it, right? Like that happens and you get taken advantage of. But I'd say that genuinely and generally people are good the vast majority of the time. And so we've just chosen as a brand, as a business, to take as good a care of people as we possibly can, even when we don't have to, even when they're taking advantage of us, and hoping that in so doing, that our brand creates a reputation amongst our customers that this is a brand I want to participate with. This is a brand I want to come back and shop with. This is a brand that I want to refer to my friends and gift to my friends because it's that good. And ultimately, I don't think that has changed, even though I do think the state of the consumer and their expectations has definitely gone up. Like the bar continues to be raised with customer expectations, both in terms of what your business does for them, as well as the way that your business should behave and should act in the world. Like everything is harder in that regard. There's just information is easier to come by. There's no secrets. There's social media and the internet have just made everything transparent. So everybody knows what's going on. And I think that when you're, a good player and you take good care of people, irrespective of like your motives, it shines through and the, the the reverse is true too. And when you're not a good person or you're a good person with strings attached and like, I'll do this, but only if you do that, then I think it shines through as well. And like consumers can see right through it. And when they do, I think that they realize maybe that's not in line with what their core beliefs are. I think that makes sense. And like, how do you measure these things? Like how, as an executive, obviously, you're a super busy person. You got a family, you got kids, you're managing all these brands. I'm assuming you're not, uh, you don't have a ton of spare time to kind of dive too deep into these things. What are some of the high level metrics? Obviously, now that you guys are public, you're looking at revenue, you're looking at profitability. What are some of the high level metrics that you look at to effectively understand that you're still on the right path that you were two, three years ago relative to making sure that at scale, you guys are treating your customers like you treat your mom. There's two key ones for us outside of the ones you already mentioned. Obviously, you know, growth is important, but ours is referral rate and repeat purchase rate. If I'm maintaining a referral rate north of 40%, which is what we have been able to do over the last year or two, I know that we're in a healthy place. If 40% of our new business is coming in from a friend or a family member telling you that you should buy our products, that's very healthy for us. And it tells me that we're taking good care of most of our customers. The repeat purchase rate, very similarly, 
if we're staying, you know, in that 45 to 50% of our customers coming back and shopping a second time, then we're genuinely, generally taking good care of them. Otherwise, they wouldn't be coming back and shopping with us again. So those are the two metrics that I look at the most closely, in addition to NPS, which again, like referral rate and repeat purchase rate, I don't care if you're doing like 500,000 of revenue, or if you're doing 500 million of revenue, like we are. Either one of those, like you can measure those two metrics. NPS, you got to pay somebody to do it, calculate it and stuff, and it can be a little bit more cumbersome. You need a lot of data points to make sure that it's there. But even for smaller brands, repeat purchase rate and referral rate is a good way to, to gauge, you know, are you doing a good job at really taking great care of your customers? Yeah, I think that makes a ton of sense. I never kind of looked at it through that lens. Now that you guys have kind of a portfolio of customers, what are some of the things that you guys have... I'm assuming, I know you had a thesis when you went to acquire these brands. I know that you're really looking at building kind of a portfolio of lifestyle brands. How are you ensuring that there's kind of synergy and cross-pollination across the brands while also respecting like the unique identity of those brands? Yeah, it's finding the commonalities of the things that they can share and they can benefit from, but recognizing too that these brands, like we invest in these brands because they're great. We don't buy fixer-uppers, right? That hasn't been our model. And so staying out of their way has been really important and making sure that they are able to stay true to who they are. The best way that we've done that is by being careful with what we centralize and what we leave with the brands themselves. So in the case of centralization, we've centralized finance, we've centralized the warehousing and fulfillment operation, and then we've started doing some centralization around digital product itself. But when it comes to product, brand, customer service, sales... Those things stay with the brand themselves, and those are managed by a brand leader or brand president. So it's just been being careful with what we centralize versus what we leave alone with the brands that's led to our success. So kind of like centralize the mundane, repeatable things that should be potentially centralized, and then the more creative things that give you kind of that edge. You don't want to strip away that creative freedom, basically. That's right. Yeah, makes sense. John, what are one thing that you think e-commerce brands should stop doing? Growing at all costs. Full stop. Growing at all costs, right? Full stop. Mic drop moment. Stop growing at all costs. Grow healthy. Be profitable. Figure out a profitable model, but stop, for goodness sakes, at growing at all costs. There's this nasty stigma in the world around D2C brands, which is they know how to grow, but they don't know how to generate profits. And we're debunking that. Obviously, we've been profitable since we started. We're still 80% direct-to-consumer. You don't have to be unprofitable to be direct-to-consumer or be e-commerce to be digital. You can be very profitable doing it, but you've got to fix your model. you got to fix your business first. So just stop growing at all costs. I might already know the answer to this question, maybe the people listening as well, but what's easier to fix? A company that's growing quickly and profitably or a company that's growing profitably but not quickly. A company that's growing profitably, but not quickly is a healthy business. And so there's a lot that you can do there to go and lean into growth because you can make investments because you're actually generating profits. I think it's very challenging to go the other direction because everybody just believes if I just keep growing, eventually I'll find scale. And when I find scale, I can be profitable. But the reality is, and, and you've seen this, I mean, you've worked with a lot of businesses. You've had a lot of clients, in fact, of yours come and go. And my guess is that one of the biggest common denominators of clients that go is that they were hoping to reach some level of scale to where they could turn profitable and they never got there. And so ultimately, they didn't have a business that they needed error protection software for anymore. 
And so ultimately they just, they were gone. That's unfortunately been the reality of the last 18 to 24 months is that a lot of D2C businesses that had never figured out how to be profitable when it was easy, all of a sudden a hard environment figured out it was an impossible task and, and ultimately had to shut their doors. And it's a, it's a pretty sad thing because there's a lot of great businesses out there that we don't, we don't have anymore because of that. I agree. And I think even to your point, I've seen it with certain customers in D2C, they're high flying, they're spending money left, right, and center. And then you get the bankruptcy notice. They still go to my parents' house, which is kind of funny. We have obviously our office, but for whatever reason, some mail still trickles there sometimes. So you get them. And to your point, there's a lot of companies that have raised $100 million in the last two years, and we're getting chapter 11 notices. I mean, it's not super common, but to your point, it's it's a bit unfortunate. Last question before we wrap up. If you can go back in time before the website launched, what would you change about it? I would look at the website. I would think about the website development through the lens of the shopper, through the lens of the customer, and make it as easy as possible for them to get from, I find the product to checkout, like completed checkout, and try to take out as much of the noise and the friction in between. I think that's Unfortunately, what's awesome about technology is also what I hate about technology is that sometimes it overcomplicates things and makes them more complex than they need to be. And I think there's a lot of sites that I'm on, some of mine included, that just don't have nearly the simplicity or the simple shopping experience that they should have for the customer experience. Makes sense. As we're closing off, is there any advice that you want to give to any e-com professionals, any VPs, C-levels, directors of direct-to-consumer e-com brands? You're kind of the goat. I find sometimes I scroll on Twitter, it's not even a joke, and I see your name and D2C brands, and I'm like, I actually know this guy. If I wanted, I could text him right now. That's insane. Listen, I just remember that hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work. That's just the reality. I don't consider myself to be an overly talented person, but I do consider myself to be a, a pretty darn hard worker and, and somebody that's willing to make sacrifices in that regard, work ethic. And so just remember, you know, talent is no replacement for hard work because hard work will always win out. I love that. I think that's a perfect way to send this off. And for everyone listening, John Maris, you can Google his name. You can find a lot of great articles, additional podcasts. A lot of words of wisdom. So really appreciate your time today. I know you're a really, really busy guy. So I appreciate you hopping on for the first ever episode. And uh, as soon as we wanted to spin up a podcast, I said, we need John on. Hey, I'm honored to be the first one. I can't believe you called me. So I appreciate it, Kalen. Good, good to be on with you. Awesome. We'll chat soon. Thanks, everybody. The e-commerce toolbox expert perspectives is brought to you by Noibu. To find out more about Noibu and how we can help you debug your e-commerce site and rocket your revenue, visit www.noibu.com. That's N-O-I-B-U.com. And then make sure to search for the e-commerce toolbox, Expert Perspectives, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found and click subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Noibu, thanks for listening.